Thank you. I love clinical evidence topics because Amy gets so excited in these shows. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great one. So, okay, first question of the day to set us up. Um, what types of clinical evidence gaps are we seeing? So, you want to start, Amy? Yeah, I, I think probably one of the, the big thing, things is, is, and it comes about through probably the stratification of data, is not having enough data to cover, say, all the variants or all the treatment indications or all the, you know, different. So it's, I mean, it's basically a gap in the evidence. Um, and, and I think also uh, it could be, you know, for legacy devices um, where, you know, they've been on the market for a long time and perhaps there wasn't an expectation there was clinical evidence for them and they haven't felt a need to gather that evidence in the post-market phase. But I think also there's, we're seeing, we're starting to see some of that impact of the change in equivalence requirements for the class three and implantable devices, where some of those devices were relying on equivalence pathways that are no longer valid under the EU MDR. About you, Jay. Yeah, I think Amy broadly covered most of the big buckets. Uh, to get a little more specific, I think um, you know going from the very early MDR reviews to until the time I left in the end of January, I think we were getting starting to see a lot more questions around SSCPs, especially for implants. You know, where there is no real survival analysis, no real correlation of benefit risk in connection with time. So that was one thing. The readability aspects of um, the SSCP were getting questioned in terms of a usability validation. That's something that I know we're working on actively these days. So there have been gaps raised to that end. Um, there, it, it, it may come as a surprise given that 2.7.1, MedDev 2.7.1, Rev4 has been out there for a while. Some manufacturers are still missing safety performance objectives, especially when it comes to the patient-specific uh, patient clinical benefits-related uh, item. Uh, and it, what may seem like a small thing is incorrect device nomenclature, right? GMDN codes continue to be used. I know this is a relatively smaller thing, but it comes up almost all the time. Uh, you're supposed to be using EMDN or uh, the CND code where the EMDN is not available. Uh, one other really interesting thing is the continued use of um, <laughs> literature as, uh, you know, PMCF. And I know, I know Annex 14 Part B talks about uh, literature reviews under PMCF, but to use literature reviews as your sole mechanism for PMCF is not really acceptable. Um, so that comes up all the time. And, and, and there are where literature is heavily relied upon, there is a lot of scrutiny around the statistical aspects of things like a very basic item is, you know, where the distribution is non-normal, um, there is no real data transformation that is used and it just uh, it raises a lot of questions. So that's, that's one thing. Sometimes when it comes to literature, the data gathered on the subject device, you know, subject device, quote unquote, is actually from similar devices, not from the actual device. So, you know, those tends, tend to be a challenge. And other than that, you know, um, there are questions frequently on the overall PMCF plan. There are questions around state of the art. You know, how do you translate all of your qualitative literature search into quantitative safety and performance criteria? I've seen a renewed push for more quantitative benefit risk analysis. So I'd say these are the main ones. And then as you get into the more specific uh, data analysis, get into the more specific avenues and approaches for PMCF, there are questions, uh, some significant questions that get raised there as well. I, I'm sure we'll we'll get to it as we talk today. Yeah. You actually made me think, rem reminded me of another one that's a very frequent uh, gap, which is specifying the intended performance, 
but yeah. not specifying the clinical benefit. And that's something that's being picked up very frequently. So i.e. it's not just what the device is intended to do, it's physical function, but what is the benefit of doing that to the patient? And I think we quite frequently see that, oh, you know, we're this stent is keeping the vessel open, but how does that translate into a clinical benefit for the patient? Oh, and I thought actually, and sorry, just to, sorry, <laughs> go on. I was going to say, and that, that can vary across patient populations, and I think it's it's quite common to see that particular high-risk patient populations can be seen in terms of clinical data, so you'll need to watch out for that. Actually, to that point, Sally, that's that's very, very correct. One of the questions that gets raised is, how do you how do you ensure that your PMCF approach, um, and I'm, I'm dwelling on PNCF, and there's a reason for that, is, is to show that your approach actually helps cover the heterogeneity of the variables to be measured, right? The heterogeneity of the patient population. And, uh, you know, one very, uh, one particular area of challenge happens to be for diagnostic devices, you know, IVIS, OCT catheters, and, and a whole bunch of other diagnostic devices that, you know, it's, it's hard for them to argue a direct patient benefit but you know the patient benefit may be through the user enabling the user to make better diagnosis but you are getting pushed to demonstrate better quality of life outcomes and even uh, you know even getting pushed to to actually quantify how you're enabling better decision making right so uh, you, you need to consider both the direct and indirect benefit so the take home message is Yes, there are lots of questions and uh, being raised, lots of gaps being identified in terms of actually defining the patient benefit, in, not just in and around the actual performance of the device, but in terms of long-term impact as well. Mm -hmm. to, add, to add on to that, um, Jay, like the translation from PMCF is really important because then mm -hmm. you know, the activity is supposed to cover those things and say the, um, the performance outcome is just like treatment success, that mm -hmm. makes it really hard to ask about is say the activities PMCF survey or registry, like what are all the things that need to be captured to adequately address that? So it's really like, it starts with this lack of data around clinical evidence, but then the way that trickles through is like a big impact for executing the PMCF activity. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, next question, look, notify body perspective. What types of clinical evidence gaps are notified bodies actually citing? Is there anything specific? No start aim? Yeah, I suppose I mean, it, it's probably the things that we've already touched on. It's you know not stratifying the data appropriately, not specifying what the actual clinical benefit is as opposed to the performance endpoints, not specifying the state of the art appropriately in light of what the device is intended to do and what the specific indications of that device are, not specifying what the benchmarks are, um, not justifying the outcomes that you get on a statistical basis. Um, I, I think, you know, broad indications comes up very frequently, lack of statistical justification comes up very frequently, and that failure to follow through that process from identifying essentially what the device is and what it's supposed to do and the benefit of doing that and the risk evaluation to your specific and measurable endpoints and your state-of-the-art evaluation and your benchmarks, and then through to your clinical evidence stratified appropriately against all the device variants and patient populations, et cetera, et cetera, with the appropriate data quality appraisal there, then following through into your PMS and PMCF plans so that you've got a nice integrated approach 
that makes sense in light of the clinical evidence av available. So I think I've kind of covered the whole thing. <laughs> it's like they're picking up kind of everything, everything that's important to demonstrating your, your that the device is safe and 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 effective in a in a scientifically valid, objective way. Let me just play devil's advocate here a moment, Amy. In terms of oh, justification. <laughs> You do have to cover all the different medical indications and the different patient populations, but I can see people thinking, oh my gosh, that's going to dilute our data more and more, and we're going to get more questions about insufficient clinical data. So I think one thing you can do is also think, <laughs> where can we build a rationale to actually pull patient groups together or indications together? Because sometimes they can be treated together. Not always. You have to consider them all separately and then start to build them back together into meaningful groups where the risk profiles are similar, the outcomes are similar, that kind of thing. I thought you were going to say that, because we've we've had this from some clients who are saying, no, no, don't stratify the data. We don't want them to see where our gaps are. And then we say, they're going to find them anyway. You know, it's better to be transparent. But what you said actually makes perfect sense. Be transparent about what you're doing and say, yes, we're pooling these patient populations together, but we've got a valid reason for doing so. And we've had expert medical opinion to facilitate that decision. So I think if you do that, if you're very transparent, about how you are, I don't want to use the word manipulating the data, but you know, if you explain what you're do, doing and you've got a good reason for it, that then gives you a pathway to using that evidence and it's less likely that the notified body is going to think, oh, they're just trying to mask their data gaps. It might not work, but it's, 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 it's better to do it that way. Jay, were any missed there? Anything else you were citing when you were at the notified body? No, I think the broad buckets have been covered, really. Um, you know, I, I started a couple of minutes ago, I started talking about some of the gaps specifically in the literature area are because, you know, a lot of manufacturers tend to um, tend to adhere to it. Um, surveys is becoming a really, really popular um, approach. And we've seen, you know, at the notified body, we've seen the approach to surveys improved drastically. They started off with a sample size of 15, right? And now they're north of 300, 400, which means they're getting they're getting fine-tuned to the point where it's not just a usability survey. It, now that, you know, we're trying to probe into the patient level aspects of things, right? Uh, there is considerations around ISO 14155. Um, patient benefits are not being ignored. There is a detailed statistical analysis plan. These used to be the hot buttons, right, uh, for surveys. And also manufacturers are becoming I may I use the word conscientious in the in the use of surveys and the employment of surveys and the relevance of surveys to some of these device technologies. So that's I, I foresee that as getting as as improving. But these were the hot areas as far as uh, some of the PMCF approaches. Now um, registries is something that notified bodies haven't seen too much of outside the really high risk novel implantable devices area. And um, I think this is an area that's going to get hotter in the future. Now, up until now, there are certain you know, hot buttons that we had identified as part of registry-based approaches while I was at BSI. You know, Sometimes there is no justification for why a registry is appropriate, bearing in mind, I'd say, state-of-the-art, the target patient population, and maturity of the technology. And sometimes the registry design, and importantly, management is inadequate to cover the lifetime of the device. So that's something that I'd encourage manufacturers to focus on. Um, you know, the expected quality of the data sets from registries is not always very clear. That needs to be discussed. There are questions raised to that end. 
Now, and, and the one other issue with registries is depending on the scope of the same, right? It's inconclusive if the expected data sets can be generalized to a larger population. You can say that this applies to an RCT as well, but that's where some of the biases need to be discussed and just how is the data generalizable to, to the larger population? This ties back into the point that Amy was making about make sure that the breadth or the span of your intended use is adequately covered as well as the target patient population. Um, and sometimes there is no provision, you know, when it comes to registries, once again, there's no provision for including any delayed complications and managing the impact on eventual data analysis. Um, it's, it tends to be inconclusive how off-label data will be prevented from inclusion in on-label data analysis. This becomes a serious challenge when it comes to registries. And also, you know, uh, adequately defining and controlling for sources of bias has been another area. And I can think of a lot of manufacturers, especially the really big medical device manufacturers, are reverting to, not reverting to, are um, you know, going towards physician-initiated single-center studies. This is becoming really popular, especially for the transient use devices, maybe in an OR or in a cath lab type of situation. There are some of the gaps that have been noted are, you know, there's a, there's a lack of clear definition of adverse events. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, something as, as ubiquitous as an MI in cardiovascular devices, heart attack, myocardial infarction, can have a different definition from one center to another, and that makes data analysis very difficult. So a clear definition of adverse events is important. Um, it's not clear how long enrollment would take, which makes PMCF commitments in terms of a timeline really difficult to judge from a notified body perspective, right? The patient cohort in a single center study tends to be sometimes not entirely representative of the approved indications. There are a host, but one of the things that I'd like to say is conflict of interest in data gathering and reporting gets ignored sometimes in these single center studies. And if your PI quits the institution, <laughs> that, that puts you in a lot of strife as far as acquiring the data. And I think sometime later during the discussion, if, if time allows, we'll get to some of the gaps associated with systematic literature reviews and meta-analysis. We have a couple related questions from the audience. Okay. Uh, first one, do we include clinical benefits as part of intended use, or are you talking about adding separate sections for clinical benefits to the IFU? When I brought up clinical benefit, I was, think, I was thinking specifically in terms of demonstrating in your CER, so in your objectives of your CER, when you're looking at what you're trying to demonstrate, you're not just showing that the device does what it says it does. You, you wouldn't just be showing, for example, that a hip replacement successfully replaced the hip, you want to show what is the clinical benefit of doing that. So, i.e., pain reduction, a restoration of mobility, you know, quality of life, um, and that sort of thing. So, so that was that was the angle I was going from, rather than amending intended purpose statements. Intended purpose statements are a whole other discussion because, yeah, we see a lot of non-compliances with intended purpose statements. But I think we could have a whole show on that. So. <laughs> I think we did actually. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, the you benefits aspect of it is more from the perspective of facilitating a, a clear conclusion in your CER, right? And establishing what the current status of your CER is in terms of are there any gaps? Is there something that's lacking in quantity and quality that eventually needs to be pursued in terms of a PMCF? And also from an SSCP perspective, where you, you know, for a lot of these devices, there is a patient SSCP that's needed. So that's where the benefit aspect comes into play significantly, not just the IFU. 
And yeah. also, it, 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 that has an impact on what the duration of the follow-up that you're looking at. I mean, you might mm -hmm. have a device that's used transiently, but the intended clinical benefit could, you know, be like for the rest of the, parent, the patient's life. I mean, I'm not saying that you would necessarily collect data for the rest of the patient's life, but or it could be, you know, it's going to give you a benefit for five years or whatever. And you need to then look at, do you actually need to have clinical evidence that goes further than just procedural success, which would be a measure of performance, but actually looking at in terms of other state-of-the-art treatment options, how long do you have to follow up the, the patient outcomes to determine whether or not the device is actually a good option in, in terms of its benefit risk in relation to the state-of-the-art? Mm -hmm. So the, related. Oh, go uh, ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, I think with the clinical benefit, it becomes uh, even more complicated for IVDs. Like, for example, in this case, it'd be the performance benefit. And, you know, on one hand, if let's take a diagnostic product, you know, if it's a giving you a response, then a lot of the, the marketing around that wants sometimes to make a claim that it's going to help with long-term treatment, say. Uh, but if there's not the evidence to back that performance metric up, then, then it's like inadequate or inappropriate to be making that claim. So then it comes back full circle to the benefit piece, like how to demonstrate that benefit. So uh, I know, John, you've dealt with this some. Uh, how does that, how have you seen that work out? I've just kind of, you're kind of talking about indirect benefits, right? And so yeah. it's not direct benefits. And recently I've sort of had to look at the, they're always a benefit. So if you have like say a surgical instrument and it provides a benefit or an improvement over other surgical instruments that benefits patients, but in and of itself, a surgical instrument typically is not a medical therapy, right? And so really the thing that's used to implant or use with the device is actually creating therapy for the device. So it's somewhat of an indirect benefit. And I've recently, uh, based on a, a, a BSI review, had to kind of include what the benefits of the actual treatment are in the state of the art in order to substantiate my benefit risk determination for the device. And I don't know, Jay, I know you thought maybe that's a little bit unfair, <laughs> but I do think that that's what they're looking for. Like you can't just say, okay, this thing performs as we expect. To Jay's point, you have a benefit risk determination. So you have to show that it has a benefit and the risks outweigh the benefit. And therefore you have to have some benefit to the patient that you can demonstrate. And I think that's where the benefits come in primarily. And they always should be tied to your performance outcomes typically and to your uh, intended use. You know in what? In the context of the state of the art. Sorry, yeah, go on. Go on, Sally, sorry. Yeah, sorry. No, I just say the, you know, the, the degree of your clinical benefit is going to, has to be in the context of the state of the art. So if there are many devices out there, many, many options that have a similar effect, first of all, you've got to establish that it has a place in state of the art. Now, if there's nothing else, then the clinical benefit doesn't have to be that great in order for it to actually offer something. But sometimes, so, so that it's not just a clinical benefit, it's a relatively acceptable clinical benefit in the context of state of the art. Amy mentioned it. I'm not sure that we all pick that up. We have a lot of related questions coming in from the audience, so we're going to go through them. Next one, can you include clinical benefit if you do not make claims on it? Oh, this is a, this is a hot topic. Mm -hmm. So, if there is an implied clinical benefit, 
then it doesn't matter whether you make explicit claims for it, you still need to demonstrate that because you're not going to, like, for example, you're not going to fuse someone's spine just for the sake of it. There needs to be a benefit of doing it. So even if you never say, oh, you'll get pain reduction or your quality of life will improve or, or you know, you still have to demonstrate it. If you, however, if there's a claim that could not be inferred by the design of the device or its intended purpose, it would purely be, you know, something that might be marketing claim, then by all means, if, you know, there's no reason to expect that device would deliver that clinical benefit, then then you wouldn't but you wouldn't need to, to provide evidence for it. But that does seem a little bit circular. So yeah, there needs you need to specify what the clinical benefit is of doing something. That benefit should be appropriate in light of the intended performance and what the state of the art looks like. So if every other you know device of that type is saying it can do X, Y, and Z, then the benefits are X, Y, and Z, and you don't have one of those benefits, then you might need to clarify, well, why can't my device deliver that kind of benefit when all the others do? And there might be a very good reason for it, but you really need to spell it out. So yeah, you can't you can't get around it just not by making claims. Okay, good. Uh, next one. Could you give examples for suitable indicators and threshold values that shall be used in the continuous reassessment of the benefit risk analysis and of the risk management? Let me read it again. Yes, please. <laughs> Could you give examples? <laughs> Gimbal's ready for this one. So. Could you give examples for suitable indicators and threshold values that shall be used in the continuous reassessment of the benefit risk analysis and of the risk management? So, is, is there a, John, like, are you going to do that? Or? John's got, well, I, I can I, see I, excitement in John's eyes. No, I'm not excited about it, but <laughs> I think what they're talking about is just whenever you're evaluating your complaints and you have thresholds with regard to your complaints and also your adverse events. And so what I've seen is for complaints, for instance, there's thresholds with regard to changes over time. And typically people track their complaints over time. And if you get a certain number of time points above that threshold, and usually it's somewhat above like a certain standard deviation outside of what you expect to be the norm. That's what I've seen. Uh, we've done, a, I guess I shouldn't, I, I have seen people starting to try to align their definitions that are in their risk management file for occurrence of an adverse event to their complaints and then also subsequently to maybe some of their clinical data. And sometimes you need to maybe have multiple definitions for what you would consider that occurrence depending on the data source. But um, so I've seen people aligning basically the one in 10,000 procedures that they might have said in their risk management file and saying, okay, is that really reasonable based on what we have seen in complaints and how does that align to complaints? So those are the threshold values. When you look at the clinical I think I, I think clinical, I don't think they're talking about the clinical data where you can use state-of-the-art adverse event rates to look at thresholds. But again, if you have literature data for your device that has adverse events compared to state-of-the-art, then those would be the thresholds I'd use there. And John, I have seen cases of reviewers asking exactly for that, of actually comparing the, the adverse event rate from the clinical evaluation back to the hazard analysis and saying, why is this different? And I guess from my perspective, it really is apples and oranges in this case. And I think that's where you might need to be spending time to update the risk management file of, um, you know, your post-market data is saying one thing on your device versus uh, what is the occurrence rate in the field, 
um, maybe like considering these other parameters around the state of the art. And really, I think it, this comes down to the probability of occurrence and then the severity of event. And so for every hazard, that could have different levels. There could be different levels of impact of a single hazard. Um, and then all of that with the clinical data would get wrapped into the risk benefit assessment. Have you seen people using different definitions for like, okay, we expect this rate in our literature versus this rate in our complaint, or like this complaint rate in the occurrence rankings for the risk? I, I mean, I haven't really seen it. So I think Not it's a done problem. well, but I don't know <laughs> how to answer this this BSI question. I mean, I'm curious to hear what Jay and Amy have to say because it's that's what the reviewers seem to be asking for. Yeah, and I was going to say I had a similar question coming through. So you know, I think it comes down to, and in the absence of any other guidance um, that, that is put out, I think it comes. Um, you can use the GHTF guidance on complaints trending. So that gives you some some pointers on how to set your initial threshold values, like your, you know, your baseline, and then you determine your threshold value for triggering it. But is this is this related to that question of when is this, when is it a sustained increase versus a blip? And I think that's going to come down to I think John alluded to your sort of confidence and intervals and the magnitude of that deviation from that threshold value. But yeah, I think it, it is tricky because so often the sources of information will give you different results. And it, you know, the 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 event, the rate that you might get from a large registry will be different from the rate that you might get from just complaints monitoring, which would be completely different again from if you had a, a smaller sort of clinical study. So quantifying what those rates are is quite complicated. But I think at the moment that GHTF guidance is probably the best starting point until until MDCG publish other guidance. I think okay. in, in something, sorry, Lisa, I just want to add real quick. I think what the reviewer really wants to see here is, is your PMS data adequately feeding back into your risk management and how are you handling that, right? Very often for most manufacturers and, and, and the reviewers know that, that most of these reviewers have very significant industry experience your occurrence ratings are set up initially as the project is going on right as you get into your dv phases that's when risk management starts to solidify you have your occurrence rating based on which you conduct all of your vnv testing and to a certain extent gathering clinical data is continued validation in a way right so but very often it's reactive rates that are used to compute these initial occurrence ratings and more often than not they stay they don't really change until something drastic happens what is that something drastic is what we're trying to put a finger to at this point right say you get some data proactively more often than not when you go out seeking data you are going to get higher rates that's just the way it is everybody understands that the reviewers understand that too what they really want to see is, okay, you've got this information. Did you actually conduct a health hazard evaluation, right, as part of your risk management process? What were the actual outcomes of your health hazard evaluation? And based on that health hazard evaluation, what was your rationale for leaving the occurrence rating unchanged? That's what the reviewer really wants to see. So they want to understand the outcomes of your risk management process. And you know, if you've conducted a health hazard evaluation, you have a rationale for why that occurrence rating did not have to change. Because sometimes your occurrence rating may change by one point and that may not have an impact on your risk index. And 
eventually you still concluded that your risk is still as low as possible right so what the reviewer wants to see here once again i know i'm repeating myself but that's important to be able to answer this question is is to demonstrate that you followed your risk management process you've conducted a hhe and as as you know an outcome of that hhe may have been that the occurrence rating doesn't really need to change because there really is no impact to the you know as far as the outcomes of the hhe are concerned so that is the that is the root or that's the rationale that i weave my response around for this particular question okay next one we we have so many audience questions that we'll probably have to have a part two of the show to cover the questions we we had planned to talk about so next audience question um if you are utilizing the non-clinical route of conformity for a low-risk device What's the best way to navigate ensuring full coverage of indications if you don't have sufficient clinical data? I, I think, I think I would, go ahead. Well, go I would sir, first question the premises of the non-clinical data route if you think you need clinical data to cover the indications. So I would say you're probably not, you probably shouldn't be using that route. <laughs> How does that, that? Amy, what were you gonna say, sorry. No, no, no. Uh, so I, I think I was going to say, actually, it may depend. I probably shouldn't say this, but it may depend to some extent on who your notified body is, because some notified bodies are a bit tougher on that interpretation than other notified bodies from what I've seen. I would agree with what you said, John. You know, if you think you need clinical data, then just don't go down that route. Go down the route of this. This is what we need to demonstrate. And this is how we're going to demonstrate it. And if you have to use non-clinical evidence in some areas, then you know, justify why the evidence that you do have, which is non-clinical satisfactory. But the second you say that it's going to be like an article 6110 or whatever, then it attracts additional scrutiny. And there's, I know from, from BSI, there's very few devices that they would be happy with that kind of rationale. Um, you could also look at the MDCG guidance, which essentially says, you might be able to demonstrate indirect clinical benefits with indirect with non-clinical evidence, but if it's a direct clinical benefit, it should be clinical evidence of some some of some quality. Yeah, I think that's where you could maybe the two routes you can go. So if the non-clinical route doesn't make sense to what Amy said, there's certain statements in the MDCG 2020-56. Six. <laughs> that says indirect benefits can be demonstrated by bench testing and uh, use with other devices so that's one place or you could go with the well-established technology route if that fits but you have to make sure it fits <laughs> and that says you can use a cumulative level of evidence which is what amy's kind of saying and so that cumulative level of evidence includes non-clinical testing and, and uh you know data from similar devices and things like that so that's the two things if the non-clinical data route works those two might possibly also work but if neither of those work then i think you need clinical data okay next question you mentioned assessing quality of the data what are the expectations for how that assessment is done i'm wondering if i understand the question because somebody else uh, is this to... is this from a literature review perspective not sure which I one of you I'm, my initial inclination is thinking it's about statistical validation of the outcomes, but I'm thinking that's kind of a broader, like the whole, you know, the whole story that you tell is kind of broader than just that. So, I would you say, think the staff interpreting the question? Maybe some they'll write back in and explain the question. Uh, 
Yeah, I could say. Why don't we do both? Not, not for the literature. Go, John. Yeah, I think quality is typically assessed using the suitability and contribution for literature, where they basically assess suitability contribution and then look at the level of evidence. So that's one way of assessing quality of the data. The other way is to go more of a quantitative synthesis of the data and use kind of, you know, quantitative methods to look at quality in, of the data. And I think, Jay, like, funnel plots and things like that to look at bias and uh, sample sizes and those sorts of things are ways to look at the quality of the data. I don't yeah. look, but go ahead. The audience member said, yes, the literature or registry review is what she was asking. Jay had mentioned it as part of discussing registry review. So how do you assess the quality of the data you're getting from the registry? There is a, an IMDRF guidance on using registries for regulatory purposes, and that gives some guidance on how you might validate um, registry, the, the quality of a registry. So that might be that could be another topic for a, okay. for, for a live show. It's another good one. Okay, next audience question. How do you define the benefit of a device that is used that is only used to facilitate the surgery? For example, a device that is a surgical instrument only used during the surgery for the implant? I almost know who this question is from. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, John, did you want to go? Yeah, it's just the indirect benefits. So you have the benefit of using the device, which is probably how it's indicated in the intended purpose is basically to, you know, do whatever action during the surgery. But when you're looking at benefits, you know, typically to establish a benefit to the patient, then you look to the implants that it's using the implant and you you basically you don't have to i don't think do quite the full summary of all the data that you normally would do for like the implant but you do need to highlight these were the benefits associated with the general procedure that this device was used in i don't know amy do you have another thought on it no no i think the and i was just i was only going to distinguish between devices that are intended to be used specifically with a particular in, you know, instruments with a spe specific device. So like if you have um, you know, a catheter that's designed specifically to, or you know, you've got a, a stent that comes delivered in a catheter, or you've got um, a, a, um, an, a drug delivery that's intended specifically for a particular type of medicine versus, uh, or like a, a you know instrument set for a, a knee replacement that's got jigs and cutting guides specific to that knee replacement, then you could assess it using the I think the performance outcomes of those devices and, in, and have infer that this shows that the accessory devices or the and the additional devices performed as intended the instruments. But if it's a I wonder if the question might be related to like it's a generic kind of an instrument that could be used with a wide variety. Of different devices and how would you show the, the benefit for that and I think that might be where you start leaning on well it's an indirect clinical benefit therefore we can show it with performance testing or it might fall into the wet category if, if notified bodies continue to accept the MDCG guidance definition of wet so yeah that was that was the just a small addition on there Okay, Lisa, uh, on. Lisa, I want to go back to that previous question around uh, data quality from the registry. I think I have a couple of examples that may help the okay. um, person who asked the question. So uh, the one example, is, say for example, you had a registry which was supposed to gather data over a long-term time frame, right? And all of a sudden, your loss to follow up is below 90%. 
Now, whenever you're lost to follow-up rates, uh, you know, your, or your follow-up rate is less than 90, 92%, that really brings about serious questions around the quality of the data set. So that's one thing. The other aspect is sometimes the inclusion-exclusion criteria can be so tight that the data is not generalizable to the larger real-world population. That's where some questions can be raised as far as the quality of the data set is concerned. And then some of the other aspects are um, identifying, and I've said this before too, it's identifying and controlling for the sources of bias. For a registry, it could be selection bias, information bias, channeling bias, and so on. So these are three examples I can think of off, off the top of my head. Other than that, there are a lot of questions uh, when it comes to quality associated with the quantitative aspects of the data analysis. You know, what kind of statistical methods are using, what kind of imputations were applicable and all of that. So I hope that helps. Okay, here's one for Celeste. Uh, for PMCF studies, which are not involving additional invasive or burdensome procedures, is ethics board approval required by the notified body if the patient data is anonymous? Oh, you get this a lot. I think it's going to depend as usual um, for if the data is anonymous, uh, the feedback is coming from clinicians or device users. I think the general uh, approach is that uh, manufacturers are not seeking IRB and EC approval, but I think it's really like survey question dependent. So and device dependent. So in some cases, information about the population is really necessary. Or when you need long-term follow-up to show use of the device. I mean, in this question, it sounds like it's not implantable, non-invasive. Um, so it's really not in that category. But when you need to be surveying a clinician about a single patient over a period of time, like that's where a registry would be better. But if you were to do that through a survey, and that's kind of getting at a chart review. And in that case, it's probably more likely you do need IRB and EC review. Um, so I know some manufacturers take the uh, review and then exempt approach uh, just to have that documentation in place. But generally for this type of device, um, that for PMCF, uh, not seeking IRB and EC review. Okay, this one's a long one, so get ready. Um, in the five to 10 year time span, is it foreseeable that clinical data gaps will be identified through comparative analysis of SSCP quantified risk, sec risk sections? And what is the growth trajectory if no standardization exists on harm coding in different manufacturer SSCPs? It seems like the regulation intends integration between clinical and risk management the inability to combine these data sources, like clinical versus complaint monitoring, seems to be setting up separate systems of risk evaluation where there should only be one. What's the panel's thought on this? This is a gimbal. <laughs> I mean, I hate to ask you to read it again, but. <laughs> <laughs> I can read it again. In the five to 10 year time span, is it foreseeable that clinical, clinical data gaps will be identified through comparative analysis of SSCP quantified risk, sec risk sections. And what is the growth trajectory if no standardization exists on harm coding in different manufacturer SSCPs? Then the person had sent the follow-up. It seems like the regulation intends integration between clinical and risk management, 
The inability to combine these data sources seems to be setting up separate systems of risk evaluation where there should only be one. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, do you think this is where the IMDRF like complaint coding needs to be kind of at the forefront because that can be used to really align the the hazards and the risk with then the clinical and and really I think the um, the person is right here that there should only be one system and that is say in the next five to ten years what we should be working towards. I think I think he or she is absolutely right in every single item mentioned here. Um, whether or not we'll get to the point of a standardization, I think really depends on what we see in the next three to four years. We're just starting to create SSCPs, right? And there are different approaches. The way, say for example, um, take take a pick line, right? Different manufacturers are at a point where they're declaring different timescales as far as the device lifetime is concerned. So that's how how much of a nascent stage we're at as far as the SSCPs are concerned. I think eventually when we get there, don't be surprised if you see another MDCG document that guides us towards standardization along the lines of what he or she has just mentioned. We're far from that, but with the increased transparency around data, we likely will get to that. Whether that will happen in the next five to 10 years, we don't know, but that certainly is the intention. Okay, next one, shorter. How much data is enough data? For example, class three implants, if you have data for say 70 patients, might that be enough? <laughs> you know, this is a classic question. Right, right, no, it's just so true. And I, I think we addressed this in our previous, um, previous live session as well. Uh, look, it, it's not just manufacturers. Notified body reviewers get these questions from their management all the time. And it's it's a very real question. That is a question that is virtually impossible to answer if you if you approach it from the perspective of how do you define adequacy because you're always going to find loopholes. It's if you're looking for an actual definition, I would refer you to the MDCG 2020-1 guidance. It has, you know, four bullet points listed under sufficient quantity, another four or five listed under sufficient quality. You can use that as a as a guidance in terms of you know what are the areas you need to uh, base your plan off of but really what reviewers are looking for in terms of adequate evidence is can you with say your data set is 70 right and maybe it's truly an unmet need where there are no alternate therapies um, you know the only thing that the patient may have to rely on is medical therapy which probably has a 50% mortality. I'm making this up, right? So your statistical relevance is significance is one thing, but then that has to be factored in along with judgment around clinical relevance. So nobody can answer a question around, is an N equals 70 adequate? Who knows what the loss to follow-up rate is? Who knows what your expected adverse event rate is? Who knows what effect size you should have been going after? We don't know. That really depends upon the patient population and the available alternate therapies, right? But what I can tell you is from the perspective of is your data set adequate, what you really need to be able to demonstrate, especially for a class three implant, is the patient benefit aspect of it, right? If you're able to demonstrate adequate patient benefit with a sample size of N equals 70, that should fly, right? So approach it from the perspective of 
are we able to adequately demonstrate patient benefit? That is, that's what needs to be your primary, you know, guiding light when it comes to be able to judging whether your data set is good enough. If you start from the definition, you're never going to get to it. Start from the other end, start from the patient benefit aspect. I think it, just to, to add to that, um, the other element of it is what your PMCF plan looks like and why you only have 70 patients. So like, do you only have 70 patients because it's a legacy device and you didn't think you needed to get, gather the evidence? Or is it advice that um, it, the nature of use means it's very difficult to get a meaningful quantity of data? Is it because it's very new? And so but there's, as you were discussing, like there's an unmet need and you can demonstrate this, the clinical benefit of it with that number of patients. All of those things are then going to affect what should your PMCF look like? Because you know what I used to see in clinical oversight is that the, the internal clinicians might be a little bit unhappy with the numbers. Like, hmm, I wish there was more than that, but I suppose it's, yeah, it's, it's I can see it's, it's good enough. And then what sold it to them was the manufacturer saying, and here we're gonna do this PMCF study to really beef that up for you. So I think it, it's going to depend, is there a good reason for there not being very, much data other than you know is there a good reason to accept that smaller quantity of data whether you know that's for practical reasons or benefit or whatever it is and what are what is the manufacturer reasonably doing to make that data set stronger and if they're not doing anything to make it stronger is there a good reason for that so um one more registry question sounds like we need a whole show on this one there's a lot um I'm planning on a post-market registry in non-EU regions for a product prior to applying for CE marking. How do I know how much data from that registry is sufficient for the CER? That again comes down to the same points that we were trying to make, right? Mm -hmm. How would you go about demonstrating patient benefit? What is, you know, what is the actual effect size that you're after to demonstrate statistical significance? And in light of that statistical significance, <laughs> What I mean by statistical significance is your entire statistical analysis plan. How would you demonstrate clinical relevance given the heterogeneity of your patient population and the benefit that you need to demonstrate in that intended patient population? There is no direct response saying, oh, if I have 543 patients, then I will be good. I'm saying 543 because in some cardiovascular registries, that is a key number, but that may not be applicable to every other device out there. So it again, you know, I, I hope you listen to the response to the previous question because the response to your question actually lies in there. Uh, go after your effect size, go after your intended patient population, the heterogeneity of the same, um, and uh, what the, the benefit should be, and then come up with a statistical um, calculation. I, I presume the design and management of your registry um, you know, closely resembles some of the requirements of your patient population. And also do consider, especially in this case, do consider whatever requirements you may need to, um, you know, bring into play, because most likely it's going to be somewhat of a prospective analysis, analysis of retrospective data, right? That in combination with whatever the standard of care differences may be, US versus EU or any other geographies, if you have to bring that data into the EU for CE marking, um, those are the items that I would request you to consider. Okay, a different topic, question for Sally. What is the role of medical evaluator in signing off on sufficient clinical data? Ah, 
Okay, no thanks, that's a great question. I would say bring your medical people in and bring them in early. I mean, we've had a lot of a lot of talk here about data crunching and statistics and all that clever stuff. But what you want to do is to be absolutely sure that you have benchmarks your devices correctly. So is the scope of your state of the art? Is that covering all the medical indications that you're interested in? Have you identified the correct patient populations? Do you know which the most important clinical adverse events are likely to be? Do your performance endpoints actually link to clinical benefit? So. If you use our clinicians early on, they will give you a shortcut. Whether they realize it or not, they'll have a very good grasp of state of the art. They're gonna know how these things work in real life, which patients they're gonna be used on. So, and they can give, sort of put some clinical, a, a good clinical context around it. And I think when you get to the review stage, and then once you've done that, then you hand it over to all these clever people who can do what we've been talking about. But I think just remember that the notified bodies are all, have a lot of clinical experts who, who will be reviewing your dossiers. So if you can demonstrate that you're speaking the same language and you're coming from a similar viewpoint, then I think that'll go a long way to reassure them. So I'd say bring them in early and get them to review moving along the way. And of course, actually the medical sign-off to the CER is probably the most important signature anyway. So it's really important that they have a lot of input right from the start. John, what have you seen on the manufacturing side that is the best practice? I've seen them being used a lot more, not as much as I'd like. I think historically people would bring in the medical evaluator at the very end and they'd read the document and provide some recommendations and then sign it. I think now most manufacturers are moving to get them involved, like Sally said, at the clinical evaluation planning stage and actually reviewing that plan. And, and the reason it's important is because of those outcomes that you're looking at. First of all, looking at the outcomes and whether or not those make sense. The other thing is looking at what are the similar devices and whether or not you're actually looking at the right similar devices. And, and then at the analysis stage, I think where they become the most valuable is once they've defined what outcomes that you should be looking at, it's really whether or not any of the risks that you've identified in the literature, what are the really actually important ones that you should be concerned about or not be concerned about or highlighting. Because what we get a lot of times is, you know, clinical study, like studies in the literature, it's usually not adjudicated data. And so they don't tell you, oh, this is like related to the device and this is not related to the device and things like that. And they can help you differentiate which are the risks that are potentially related to device, which are like kind of off the wall, like, oh yeah, that has nothing to do with the device. That's actually like, you know, something we see in the procedure all the time and it's due to this other thing that's used with it. So they can really provide a lot more of the nuanced arguments or context that I think, you know, most medical writers don't have the experience to necessarily pick up on. And also they should be looking at it from another medical person looking at this and saying, okay, does this make sense from a medical perspective? Okay. Yeah, thanks, John. Can I just add something? I think it's also useful. They will be able to, or they should have a good idea of how these patients are managed for real. So particularly when you're developing your PMCF follow-up, if you know how these patients are managed, how they're followed up, how they're investigated, you're not going to ask for unrealistic endpoints in your PMCF planning. So that can also be quite useful planning ahead. That's true, Sally. I've definitely seen that on teams where they have that clinical insight and input from the very beginning, it's instrumental in the process for PMCF planning. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. We are way over time. 
way over time. So we're going to stop for today. We will schedule a part two of this next month and go through all the questions that we were that I was planning to ask today. So thank you. Thank you.